All right, let's do this. Peanut, if you're staying in the room, no talking. Welcome to the PhotoWork Podcast, the talky and touchy-feely version of my book, PhotoWork, 40 Photographers on Process and Practice. Hello, everyone. I'm Sasha Wolf, recording from Woodstock, New York, and joined as usual by my friend and producer and soon-to-be deck builder, <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Mr. Michael, handier than we thought, <laughs> Chovin Dalton. Hello, Michael. Hello. Yes, we are uh, planning for a, a little deck project up at the mothership. <laughs> yeah, not not so little. Um, in, in case people thought we were joking, <laughs> last episode, I have Tom Sawyered my way once again. Um, and uh, you're coming up in a few days um, mm -hmm. with our friend Peter K. Office and the three of us are building a uh, big deck. Yeah. Materials have started to arrive, by the way. Oh, good. Good, good, good. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> filling yep. you in right now on the show. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it'll be fun. Yep. So, yes, we're going to build a deck. We'll post pictures of the deck. That'll be, right. that'll be fun. <laughs> um, stairs and all. We're not messing around. Mm -hmm. So... Well, we'll get to the show because it's on the longer side. Yes. We have really an incredible show, I think, today and then again in two weeks because this is our first, mm -hmm. not only was it our first double guest, but it's our first two-part episode, which obviously is not that surprising since we had two guests with two different right. With two different projects and the same project. So Christine Potter has a new book that's about to come out. You can pre-order it now, and we'll talk about that in a second. And Rebecca Bengel, our other guest, also has a new book out with Aperture. These are both books with Aperture. And Rebecca's book is, is already out, so you can get that now. But Rebecca also contributed to Christine's book, and they, had, right. they have a really wonderful relationship and personal and working relationship and and we just felt it would be really interesting to have them on together to talk about Christine's new book and also Rebecca's new book and bookmaking and all sorts of other things. And I have to say, sometimes, you know, I'm just having a great time. I love talking to a particular guest. And maybe it's not the episode of the century, but I had a great time. And sometimes it goes the <laughs> other way where I didn't really have a great time, but it actually turns out to be an episode that's filled with a lot of interesting stuff, even if maybe I was, you know. Um, yeah, sometimes uh, an episode is dessert and sometimes it's medicine. <laughs> yes, ex <laughs> exactly. And sometimes when it's medicine for me, it's dessert. <laughs> for other people or vice versa. So Exactly. <laughs> but I, I loved, so we recorded for over two hours and I could have continued. I That's a long mm -hmm. time for me to sit still. We didn't break and I was completely enthralled. And I think it will, I think it's an episode for everyone. So I don't think it's an episode just for me. I think it's a really fantastic couple of episodes. So what, yeah, what are your thoughts, Michael? Well, let me 
just uh, fill in a couple things. Rebecca's book is called Strange Hours, Photography, Memory, and the Lives of Artists. And I know she has some events coming up, so you should visit her website, which will be linked in the episode uh, to see what talks are coming up. Uh, and of course, Christine Potter's book is Dark Waters, and that will be out very soon. And you can pre-order that now. But this episode, well, the first half of this episode uh, is great. We learn a little bit more about Christine Potter than we didn't know before from her <laughs> yep. previous episode. <laughs> so <laughs> stay wonderful tuned for that. <laughs> and funky tidbits. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And Rebecca also uh, introduces herself on this show. And they have a lot of crossover uh, interest in, in how they were raised and where they were raised and their interest in yep. music. And that's a really uh, interesting conversation. And then getting to Christine's book, Dark Waters, uh, you all have a fantastic conversation about how to include these murder ballad texts uh, into the book uh, in a way that doesn't glamorize uh, this, this sort of casual violence against women. And Really a fantastic conversation. And of course, yeah. in part two, you'll talk more about Rebecca's work, her book, and also the short story she wrote for Christine's book. And I know that, you know, we were sort of in the last episode, um, Matt Eich's episode, we were encouraging, or I was certainly encouraging people to get these books. And now to make it a little mm -hmm. bit easier, Aperture has offered a discount. Do you want to detail that? Sure. So it's 20% off both books, Strange Hours and Dark Waters. And the discount code is Strange Waters, <laughs> which is fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And that is at uh, aperture.org. Uh, that expires on October 1st. So it's through September. And you'll type that in as all one word in your shopping cart. So 20% off, not bad yeah. at all. Thank you, Aperture. <laughs> and um, mm -hmm. There was also a really beautiful article um, the other day in the New York Times on Christine's book, and that was just a, a wonderful thing to see. I think the book is really going to be a big deal. I do, too. Yeah, yeah. I really do. It, I, I'm actually excited. This is one of those books where I'm just excited to show it to my students. Yeah. yeah, I have an advanced copy, and I had a number of friends over for dinner the other day in the city, and... It was just passed around, and a, a big part of our evening together was, was discussing the book. So mm -hmm. that was really fun, really wonderful, and it's, it's that engaging. It's, it operates on so many different levels that you can really sit around and, and talk about it. Right. So proud of Christine. <laughs> I posted something the other day about the book on Instagram and I said something about trying to be objective or whatever. And I think a bunch of mm -hmm. people didn't understand that. But so just to make it clear, I represent Christine. Sasha Wolf Projects right. represents Christine Potter. So I, I just want to be clear about that. I'm quite certain that even if I didn't represent Christine Potter, I would be saying all these things and having her on the show and yada, and yada. looking to represent Christine Potter. <laughs> right, exactly. And trying to figure out how in God's name I could... Uh, Steal her I from could, someone else. I could, well, I'm not a thief, but <laughs> I'm just a charmer. I'm just a charmer, Michael, not a thief. So anyway, just wanted to say that. But why don't we get into it? Because it's really an incredible episode. And I, I can't wait for people to listen to it and, and email us and DM us and let us know what you think. Absolutely. Michael, if you don't mind, please take it away. My pleasure. And here is part one of your conversation with Christine Potter and Rebecca Bengel.
Christine Potter, Rebecca Bengo, welcome to the PhotoWork Podcast. It's great to have you both on. It's so fantastic to have you here together because you've worked on a project together that we'll get into, and it's wonderful to have two amazing women on the podcast at the same time because I know we're just going to have wonderful conversation. I've really been looking forward to this. So we'll start as we always do with some biographies. And I know, Christine, you've been on before, so you're going to give us a slight variation while sticking to the facts, more or less. Um, (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know. That's what I was just thinking. I was like, or maybe she won't. Um, Maybe it'll be like the early life you wish you had. Anyway, Mm. so why don't you take it away and and tell us about your journey to here and then um, and then Rebecca, you you will follow suit. But Christine, why don't you start us off? Well, first, thanks. Thanks so much for having me on again. And this is super, super fun to do with Rebecca and you together. So yeah, just thank you um, for the opportunity. So yeah, I've been on before. And so as not to bore uh, those who've, who've heard the bio, I suppose I'll try to touch on a few lesser known aspects of my upbringing. I think fairly well known is that I grew up in a small military town in middle Georgia, And I had the uncommon experience of never leaving that town as a kid. Like most military families move around a lot, but our family, once we moved there, stayed put and all the other families around us were pretty transient. They'd come in for a few years and then leave like most military families do. I had two older brothers and a military dad and a mother who grew up with a bunch of brothers and a military dad and a mother who grew up with a military dad. So pretty far up the the family tree. And, you know, we weren't Southern culturally. We were military. And that is generations deep. So I don't know how to explain that except to say that it is significant and I think different way of growing up in the South. My family's home is still, they, my parents still live in the home that I grew up in, and it's on a plot of land with a lot of forest. And I grew, you know, I grew up in that forest, basically. That's where we hung out. And I mostly tagged along with my brothers whenever they'd let me, just building forts and trails and all that stuff. And if if I wasn't doing that, I was pretty glued to the TV. That was like my portal to what was happening on the outside of this small little town. And I was particularly obsessed with MTV as a kid and just would watch music videos really for hours on end if if I was allowed. And art, I mean, I'll say art wasn't really present for me, not fine art in any way. My family didn't really pay attention to that. I had no real access to it in that town. And so, you know, I'm not one of those people who grew up like sort of artistically inclined as a kid. I That didn't really come to me until halfway through college, actually. So in terms of college, I did stay in Georgia. I mean, I had really a lot of plans to get out. I spent a lot of time as a kid dreaming of New York City and just bigger cities that I thought I wanted to live in. But the state of Georgia has something called the Hope Scholarship, which allows if you make like a B average in high school, then you can get your tuition paid at an in-state school. So that was a pretty compelling reason to stay in-state. So I went to the University of Georgia, which is in Athens, Georgia, which I knew to be a pretty hip, like kind of cool town. And I was excited about getting out of middle Georgia, out of Warner Robins. So 
I got to college and I majored in a lot of things. <laughs> I kind of bounced around, I think, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I think most people would be surprised to know that I studied Japanese language for two years. Uh, I thought I'm that surprised. Was, I thought that was a thing. <laughs> uh, don't test me because I've really forgotten most of it. But you know, I just was kind of bouncing around classes trying to figure out what would stick. And meanwhile, I was really, really involved with the radio station there, the college radio station. And I kind of quickly became the director there. And I had a couple of shows. I had a jazz show on Saturdays. And I had another show was called Live in the Lobby. And it would have a different local band play every week. And this is like a really kind of storied show because Athens, of course, is the home of REM and B-52s. And there's just a lot of kind of amazing musical history to that town that I wanted to integrate myself or steep myself in. I'm not a musician. I just was a fan of music. And that that was really exciting part of my life. And because I was the local music director, I could get into all the clubs for free. So I was pretty much out every evening. And I would kind of grab classes that were only in the afternoons, because I really couldn't do early mornings because of my nighttime schedule. So I'll just say that I found photography because I had finally settled on art history. I was studying art history, and part of that degree was that you had to take some studio classes. And so I picked up a photography class. I didn't really know. It was just photo one. I didn't know who any of the professors were, but boy, I lucked out because my first photo professor turned out to be Mark Steinmetz. And it happened really fast for me. A couple classes in, listening to Mark kind of talk about photographers that had influenced him, Cartege, Bresson, Brassailles, um, Winogrand, of course, a little Helen Levitt for good measure. But, you know, I was hooked. And this was a language that instantly made sense to me and kind of remarkable, of course, because we all have exposure to photography in our lives. But I just had never, I had never considered it that way. And so that was that, you know, I was ready to, to really fully commit and I did finish the art history degree because I, I was already so far along and I did love studying that, but I stuck around to get the photography degree as well. And at the time, you know, there was all this kind of crazy stuff happening in Athens musically. I was really close to the Elephant Six bands and that includes like Neutral Milk Hotel and uh, of Montreal and just bands that now kind of have a little bit of a cult history to them. Those were like my roommates and friends and stuff. And I just mentioned that because uh, I learned so much from them. They were just bringing like really esoteric ways of thinking and just crazy, like out of the box jazz and stuff like that was really part of my education that wasn't happening at the university. And people might also be surprised to know that I, I was doing performance art at the time, too. I was... <laughs> I was hanging out with this group of women who were Say part what, of that. Ma'am? I know there, there was <laughs> like, um, we were called the Dixie blood mustache and it was this group of women. <laughs> oh um, and we were just doing these like Dada performances often opening for like these rock bands basically. So the, it wasn't really an art institutions. It's stuff that happened in musical venues and yeah, just really out of the box eccentric stuff that really permeated like kind of my college days. But I finished the degree and, you know, I still I still was ready to get out of Georgia. So through a series of weird kind of serendipitous 
events and wanderlust connected, I should mention, to the fact that I got a credit card. Um, you know, they used to just give those away to college students. I got a, my first credit card and my very first passport. And I went to Japan for six weeks. Because again, I, I was interested in Japanese culture. I kind of thought I could speak Japanese. I can't. But I went to Japan by myself for six weeks. I had never left the country. My family never traveled. So this was like a mind-blowing experience. And part of that is that I... I met someone and ended up moving to Paris after um, after I graduated. So I, w- I won't go too far down that rabbit hole because that's a whole other thing to unpack. But when I moved to Paris, I had to get a job. And I, I did. I managed to get a job printing in this really, really nice, like kind of high-end uh, boutique lab that was working for a lot of major artists and a lot of journalists. So Pierre et Gilles and William Klein were some of our clients and and, and just a whole slew of journalists that were working in North Africa would bring their film to Paris to get developed and contacted. And I was working on that. So, you know, I stayed there for a couple of years and, you know, just continued to have these really formative experiences, learning about the world and traveling a lot and really making up for all that time I had otherwise spent in a like, really small town in a forest building forts or something. This was just a really, really different world to be living in. Eventually, I was really thirsty, I guess, for uh, some conversation about my own work. I found that hard in Paris. It's not just the language barrier, but just the tastes in photography there weren't what I thought I was interested in at the time. And so I really wanted to go to graduate school. And for me, it was like, things were pretty good in Paris. I didn't I I wasn't trying to escape something, so I didn't need to apply to like a dozen schools and just go wherever. I I really wanted to go to Yale because Yale had educated Mark and also Stephen Shear, I should mention. I studied with him at the University of Georgia too. I studied more with him than Mark actually because he was running the program and you know, he had gone to Yale at the same time as PL de Corsia, so that really quickly became a big influence on me as well, just seeing his work a lot. Anyways, miraculously, I guess I got in. So I I left Paris to go to Yale. And that was two really amazing, incredibly difficult years. And, you know, this was 2003 to 2005. And I'll just say, Todd Papa George was still head of the program. Um, The amazing Richard Chip Benson was the dean. And this is like some of the last years that that lineage was still running the program. And um, I I think it's a, I don't know, but I suspect it's a pretty different program in in a lot of ways now than, than it used to be. But It was a tough time for me. It wasn't like a finishing school, (laughs) that's for sure. I left and I left feeling pretty beat up, but not in a bad way. You know, I do still really have a lot of gratitude for the education I received and definitely for the people I met there, some of whom are still my closest friends I talk to every day. So uh, after that, I moved to New York and uh, just, you know, so as not to go on too long, I'll say that, you know, I spent 12 years in New York, and I did a lot of things. But most significantly, I guess I I worked for PL de Corsia for about six or seven years as his assistant. And um, that was, again, another kind of amazing education. And, and I started teaching. And uh, we discussed this in my last podcast, Sasha, but I, you know, I taught at SUNY Purchase for almost a decade. And 
and that was really wonderful. The students were great. And then uh, I met my now husband and we eventually decided to leave. Uh, through a series of, I guess, considerations, moved to Nashville, Tennessee, where I live now. And that's been six years already, which is hard to believe. But there we are. Thank you, Christine. <laughs> that I, I, <laughs> I, I can't believe that I mean, we've been friends for a while. I represent your work. And today I learned that you were a performance artist. So thank you. <laughs> Fantastic. I will tease you mercilessly from now until the end of time. Um, You're welcome. Rebecca, please take it away. Tell us about yourself. Hi, thank you. Thanks so much for, for having me. And it's great to be here and, and to be in conversation with both of you. And it's funny, like hearing, even though Christine and I have talked about our backgrounds to each other a little bit, um, and that's part of what brought us together to to collaborate it still gives me chills, like hearing hearing your biography. And I mean, I could just do like a sort of call and response to yours and like bring out <laughs> some of the <laughs> the shared themes and, and I, I'll like summarize them a little bit. But yeah, it's I mean, you know, like definitely no, I didn't really have a lot of military background. We don't have that in common, but definitely growing up in the South, growing up in, in the woods, I was also living a life of that revolved around MTV and what other trash TV I could access um, and sneak away with and um, building forts in the woods with my friends and a lot of those things. And even even ongoing to like really being raised in a music scene in a small southern college town like that was that was also really pivotal. But yeah, just to kind of back up. Yeah, I grew up in western North Carolina in a little town surrounded by the Blue Ridge Mountains. And, you know, it was, I also, I'm the daughter of a deaf father. My father's completely deaf and there's a lot of deafness on his side of the family. And they were very rural. They grew up, he grew up on a farm, but he came to the boarding school for the deaf, which is where was in my hometown. And that's what brought my parents together. My mom was a teacher there and they both worked at that school. So, Growing up, my sister and I, it was definitely like you'd go back between different worlds. There was a lot of traveling between, you know, the deaf and the hearing world or between one grandparent's farm, which just felt like in a totally different zone. And then our little town or between different mountain towns where our best friends lived or the other another city where my, my other grandparents lived, which is a little more like small town south. And then the worlds of that we aspired to, which were, you know, in our imaginations or on MTV. My family also didn't travel a lot. I didn't leave the southeast. I, I guess I left, you know, I went as far south as Florida and as far north as D.C. And then finally was an exchange student. And um, by the time I was a senior in high school, and so got out of the country then. But we didn't travel that much. But we had parents who my mom was and is a big reader and also a big fan of modern art. And even though there wasn't a lot around where we were, that kind of opened up some stuff to us, I think, in a way. It wasn't like I didn't know that much, but I think there was just an openness. And we were just creative weirdos whose parents encouraged and or tolerated that. So in all kinds of degrees. So it was it ran from putting on plays as a kid, taking theater classes, putting on our own Saturday Night Lives, like completely staging them and costuming them and filming them. There are VHS tapes somewhere. 
but also writing, making books, reading, making, and, and just playing these like very elaborate imaginative games, you know, very much like a daydream life. And, and that's still, I'm still a bit of a daydreamer, I guess. But, uh, I eventually went to college at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, which, has more of a reputation as like an arts and music school. They have a very old creative writing program that's for graduate students. But I just sort of glommed onto that as as an undergrad. And I met a really influential writer for me, who's still a great friend and mentor, named Michael Parker. He's a novelist and short story writer. And he was just one of those people that kind of opened me up to, you know, I mean, I, I was I was always wanting to escape where I was from, and he related to that. He was from another really small town in eastern North Carolina, but kind of just helped me figure out how to how to work with place, and and just encouraged my interest in language and my weird interest in subverting narrative structure and and experimenting a lot. I had just discovered Faulkner in high school, and like. Virginia Woolf. And so I was really excited about just turning all these things on their head. And, and, and just, I was really nerdy and still am about like all the possibilities of story. And at school, even though I didn't take a lot of art classes, a lot of my friends were artists or musicians or in the film school. And I was in a band for a while as well. Like the bigger, the cooler clubs were, you know, down the road. Uh, a lot of, you know, most people came and played in Chapel Hill. So that was like an hour away. And we just, we kind of had to create our own fun. So again, I was just soaking up sort of what I could. And after I was an intern eventually at the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke, which was, and I got a, my first real job there, I guess. I'd done a lot of different, tons of tons of jobs um, supporting myself through school, but I became an assistant at this magazine, Double Take. And this was a very short-lived time. I probably worked there for maybe a year total, but so influential. I mean, I was really turned on to a lot of photography there, a lot of writers there. Double Take was a really beautifully produced and designed literary magazine that included a lot of their basis was documentary photography, but they also included all kinds of narrative photographs. And so the main thing that that was kind of a breakthrough for me was just seeing how they didn't treat photographs as illustrating a text or vice versa. Each artist was sort of considered equal and those two things had their own relationship. And so it was just this equalizing force of words and image where they, they could sort of have their own parallel track. And I loved that. And I just, I also just met a lot of amazing people, would sit in on the photo edits, even though I was there as a, a fiction editor, primarily reading submissions and making recommendations. And then the whole ecosystem of that place, the whole center, it's very much in flux right now. And it's, it's actually completely upsetting what's, what's happening to it now. But, um, at the time it was just really flourishing. And there are all these grassroots community projects and great exhibitions. And each time I would go back to Durham in the many years after that, I would always check out the, the exhibits there. My sister was working in another program that was housed there. They were doing a lot of just like activism work, you know, film festival, just really vibrant place that just, you know, just for somebody who had, <laughs> who'd grown up in, in such an isolated place, it was, it was exciting to be exposed to all that stuff and to a lot of books. My primary exposure to, 
a lot of photography and new writing had been through whatever magazines kind of filtered down to me. So that was a big eye opener. I did some more uh, jobs and then eventually went to the Missioner Center for Writers in Austin, Texas to get my MFA in fiction. And, you know, again, got to work with some of my heroes, Joy Williams, Dennis Johnson, many others had a great group of friends within the program and a whole, and again, like North Carolina, a really strong community scene outside of, outside of school. So Austin was so fun then. It was a lot cheaper to live there. It's just become astronomical lately, but I still have a great, uh, really great, strong community there. And again, a town of creative weirdos. It's, that's my, my place. And eventually I, I was like, well, I, I don't know how to make a living in Austin. There, there wasn't the kind of influx of money there then. So in the late, I guess, around 2005, I first came to New York and started just working, freelancing, doing different jobs here. And I had just always wanted to live here and try it. And I did a little bit of uh, freelance magazine writing because I just never wanted my fiction writing to be dependent on having to earn to make money. I, you know, I wanted that zone to be sort of protected and to be able to experiment and to work freely in that. When there were opportunities, I had worked with a, um, I did my first sort of photography related piece in 2008, which was when William Eggleston had a retrospective at the Whitney. And so I went down to Memphis and did a long interview with him. My sister and I went. She's a photographer. She photographed him. And then for years, I, I didn't really, I wasn't really publishing a lot of magazine writing. But eventually, I started, I was doing all these like freelance editing jobs at different places and eventually made my way to Vogue out of through a series of strange accidents. I mean, my resume is kind of funny because you, it's like I worked at The Onion and then I worked at Vogue. <laughs> um, maybe not exactly in that order, but like equally great, <laughs> equally great, equally influential, equally strange. But I worked at, at Vogue at the website for several years um, as an editor. And I think it just it just kind of came up as a way of I was writing some for outside magazines and for Vogue, the you know, the language, the main language is photography and everybody wants to talk to Vogue. So I kind of used it as an excuse to begin talking to photographers, writing, writing about artists and just having these conversations to figure out how they made their work. I was doing that concurrently with writing and publishing fiction and pursuing all, you know, just again, the creative weirdo life in New York, <laughs> just the New York version of whatever that is. But that led to just um, eventually writing more exclusively about photography and about music, and then sometimes getting to collaborate with certain artists, either on books or on reported stories and out, you know, kind of out in the field and by no means a trained journalist, but I'm curious and interested in people. And there's like a part of me, I think that is just, you know, it's, it's wonderful to be by yourself and completely free to, and also torturous to be, <laughs> to be that person working on and, and, and imagining and writing fiction, but there's also a part of me that's very curious about the world and wanting to interact. And again, wanting to steal and learn from all these artists that I admire and to figure out how you can kind of steal from film or from, from photography or from visual art and how does that somehow relate to 
what I'm better at doing. So I became kind of an interloper in all of those worlds and sometimes make work in some of those realms myself here and there. And a lot of this stuff, I would say, just to kind of backtrack before I finish rambling here, you know, looking back, I always, like Christine, I think you you think of your the place where you live is like, oh, there's just nothing here. You know, I was lucky to have teachers to show me that there was. And But at the same time, photography-wise, it's interesting to go back and see, like, there were actually artists who came to where I lived. You know, Dwayne Michaels came and photographed our town witch. It was a big scandal, and there was a town witch. <laughs> she was a would-be country singer who was accused of murder, and she also practiced witchcraft. Dwayne Michaels made these beautiful ghostly photographs of her for Esquire magazine. Mary Ellen Mark, whose portraits I probably saw in like Rolling Stone and stuff, um, she came to my county to a town like 10 minutes over and made photographs that probably people can imagine or have seen before of a young girl smoking cigarettes, sitting in a kiddie pool in the backyard. You know, all these things were happening. And Barbara Loden, the filmmaker, she made Wanda. She grew up really close to where I grew up, like in between me and my best friends who lived up the mountain. And I could tell when I saw Wanda, I was like, this, I really recognize this specific landscape and she didn't film it exactly there but it was kind of a mind's eye thing she was trying to recreate the places that she knew growing up so that kind of stuck with me too just the way that you can recognize kind of the place of a place and the way that these things sort of stay in the dirt the way you attach like music to place places that you drive by the way that that attaches to memory and how that kind of fuels stories in your head. And I think that's something that also, uh, some another bond between uh, Christine and, and me, especially in terms of the Dark Waters project and, and my role in it. And I'm just really astounded by Christine's work and such. And it was such an honor to be a part of this. And so it's great to to talk some more about it now. I'll le- let's kick it back over to you guys. Oh, thanks, Rebecca. The feelings entirely mutual. Um, yeah, thank you. Yep. Thank you both for such vivid bios, background stories. Um, it's really wonderful to hear both of you um, get into some wonderful detail. And when you both talked about where you're from, I, I had such imagery in my mind. So I've been just sitting here listening to you both and, and so absorbed. I feel like um, someone was reading me a bedtime story in a strange way. <laughs> so, Christine, starting with you and Rebecca, you'll, you'll obviously be involved with this because of your contribution to the book. But Christine, let's start with talking about Dark Waters, your new book that's about to come out with Aperture. It's so exciting. It's, I'm, you know, obviously have a, a vested interest, but, you know, this has been a, th- a thrilling process. I am just in love with this work. I think it's really, I, I you know, it's hard to say things without it. Sometimes things come out of my mouth that, you know, sound hyperbolic, and this is going to be one of them, but <laughs> I mean it. I think this is this is one of the most unique projects that I've ever seen, but that's not what makes it great because there's we see unique work that we don't respond to. We see unique work that we feel quite certain is actually not very good, and on and on. I will stop with the negative and flip back over to the positive. But with this project, 
I think what really blew my mind when I first saw it was how complex it is, multi-layered, and I'm going to let you, I'm going to let you explain what I mean. So multi-layered, multifaceted, but so friggin' authentic. And what I mean by that is it feels, it feels so deeply emotional and true to your feelings about the subject matter. And so this marriage between an intellectual construct and deep feeling is so in balance. And it's really an incredible achievement. So I'm, I'm you know, sorry to be mushy, but I'm, I'm so proud of you and so happy for you. And then the fact well, that you got... Well, now I'm embarrassed. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. No, oh, thank you. It, no, that's, in, that's incredibly generous of you. And I really appreciate all of that. Thank you. And I hope I, I hope my description of, of the work can measure up to those descriptions. Can um, I just ask you on that note, there's a Rebecca Solnit quote that you have at the front of the book. Can you read that and then tell us uh, what the book is and yeah. what it's about? Yeah, for sure. And that's that's actually a great way to introduce it. It's almost like you've done interviews before, Sasha. <laughs> well, one or two. <laughs> okay, so in the book... The very first thing you see is the portrait of a, a woman seated kind of in the forest. Her eyes are closed and she has just all of this hair, this like incredible hair that is, you know, somehow of the landscape and also of her simultaneously. And you move through the title page and then you come across um, this quote by Rebecca Solnit. To be a young woman is to face your own annihilation in innumerable ways or to flee it or the knowledge of it or all of these things at once. The struggle to find a poetry in which your survival rather than your defeat is celebrated, perhaps to find your own voice, to insist upon that, or to at least find a way to survive amidst an ethos that relishes your erasures and failures, is a work that many and perhaps most young women have to do. And I'll say that you know, I had been working on this project for years under pretty similar conceit. When I found that quote last year, it came out in her memoir, I think published in 2018. I was really taken aback because I felt like it described in much more poetic way than I could articulate, at least with language, the concerns of the work, which is to say, so much of the storytelling that exists in the world revolves around the diminishment of women, often in violent ways, um, whether that is abuse or murder or the dead girl trope of cinema, of literature, that it is hard to imagine other outcomes sometimes. And so much of this work, while it is based in the real world, and I'm I am accessing kind of different ways of telling this story. So much of it for me is about the psyche. It's about what ideas exist in our mind and what kind of stories we carry with us, you know, into the landscape or across the parking lot at night with your keys gripped in your hands. Like, you know, to some degree, what threat exists because of stories you've been told. So 
I might be extending that into a too practical a place, but I did find that quote to be just incredibly compelling and was really grateful when we got permission to include it. Thank you for explaining that and how it made its way into the book. And tell us now, because no one does it better than you, tell us about the book, this book, Dark Waters, that's that's coming out. Yeah. So, you know, this was my foray back into the southeast, into the southern landscape. And I, I have been, at least for the last decade or so, kind of working regionally, thinking about the stories in the American landscape, or at least the stories we tell ourselves. So after Manifest took its primary concerns on Manifest Destiny and the American West, I decided to come back to a landscape I knew better because I had grown up here. And um, the tenants at first had certain concerns and, you know, it, it definitely evolved as I was making the work. But I think in the end, the work really, or the book, I guess, really focuses on a history of violence in the landscape and in um, sort of the cultural output of place. And I'm interested in the questions of whether this place is more conducive to violence, whether the history of violence in the landscape sort of persists with an echo, and whether that influences what we create or or vice versa. And I'm, I'm taking some really specific examples and using them to explore those ideas. So the first component, and I guess what first put me on the road making pictures is I was following bodies of water that had violent or ominous names. So Murder Creek, Bloody River, Rape Pond, this kind of thing. I'd circle them on a map, go and try to make pictures. And at the same time, I was using the history of murder ballads to explore notions of casual acts of gendered violence. And this really became kind of the main thrust of the work, which sort of feels like a niche interest, I guess. But I'm using them as a symbol for much of our popular culture, which centers on stories of violence, particularly violence against women, as entertaining So the work weaves, uh, the waterscapes, as I call them, pictures of people or situations in the vicinity of these waterscapes, situations that I feel like are sort of impacted by the energy of place. And then uh, studio portraits. And the studio portraits are of women. They are, you know, black backdrop, just one stark light, and a very wet woman. And I kind of see them as women I'm, I'm disengaging from the histories in those songs. So, you know, the murder ballad tradition is related to Appalachian folk traditions. It, it really has deeper roots in British Isles. But as the name implies, these songs are stories of murder. And many of them, though not exclusively, but many of them, are men killing women for whatever inconvenience she represented. She was a mistress and he was going to get found out. She became pregnant. She was below his station. Uh, She looked at another guy. She wouldn't marry him, you know, so on and so forth. The exact same stories we see play out in film and TV and and literature. and, And these were the ballads that particularly interested me. So the studio portraits sort of reanimate these these victims, I guess you could say. And, you know, the challenge for me, especially somebody who I think is more known to be working in this kind of expanded documentary tradition, I don't know what we're calling it these days, that I had I had now integrated studio portraits 
and some other pictures that are really staged. And that felt like a, I don't know if the word's risky, it felt risky thing for me to do somehow, but I felt really inclined and increasingly I just trust the inclination. So I made them, but it, it was a challenge to integrate them. But one of the things that I think begins to happen is, you know, this notion of what's real and what's staged isn't so clear. You can sense it, but you can't always put your finger on it. And and I think some notion of who's telling the story kind of is at play. And, and maybe some other things too, but it continues to be a challenge even on the wall, how to get these pictures to talk to each other in the right way. So one, one of the other components in the book that feels important to bring context to all of this is the integration of some of the text, um, some of the lyrics from these murder ballads, and then this incredible contribution from Rebecca Bengal of a sort of narrative piece at the back of the book, which I think sort of brings atmosphere to to the sequence. Can it brings you, more um, than that. But, yeah. <laughs> Thank yeah. you so much, Christine. I'm, I'm like, now I'm sitting here, you know, invisibly blushing as well, or invisibly to you guys. <laughs> Can you just take a moment and read some of those, uh, pick out a lyric um, that's in the book from one of the murder ballads? Because I'm sure a lot of people listening don't really, I have a feeling once you start reading something, there'll be some familiarity, but... I imagine some people are not clear on on what that is. Yeah, I'm I'm flipping through trying to find one here. You know, it does feel like old-timey balladry in a way, and I think the important thing to remember is just how contemporary the story is <laughs> that we keep yeah, we keep retelling these. Yeah. Yeah, you flip through. I mean, I'll just add that one thing that's just really fascinating is that in the appendix in the back of the book, you list the songs that you quote from. Mm-hmm. And with early recordings, and then very often, they're still being recorded today. So they're not left behind. They're, they're still, um, these, these stories are still being told by, by musicians. I mean, obviously, they are, you know, woven into the fabric of a certain type of music that's very important and very important to a, a subculture of musicians. But yeah, there's a casualness to it that's also somewhat disturbing. Yeah. I mean, most of these fall, it's, it's not just folk you know, Appalachian folk, but most of these would be considered part of our American standards. You know, mm-hmm. the, the 200 songs that, you know, sort of represent the tradition of American music. And so it's interesting to me that, and I, you know, there's a, a long history, a little bit of how I first became aware of these. And it was because my now husband was practicing American standards so that, you know, when he got the gig in Nashville, where, you know, if you're going to get that gig, you have to play, you have to be able to play one of 250 songs at a call at the drop of a hat. That's if you want to play here, you got to be able to do that. And so he was kind of brushing up on these standards. And and we used to have studios next to each other in Ridgewood. So I could hear what he was doing. And I was like, my God, what are you listening to in there? You know, and that's the genesis of of how this got incorporated. But I'll, I'll take the first one that I really know noticed is called Knoxville Girl, based um, in Knoxville, Tennessee. 
And this was most famously sung by the Leuven brothers, but of course, many people have sung it since. I'll read a couple stanzas here. She fell down on her bended knees. For mercy, she did cry. Oh, Willie, dear, don't kill me here. I'm unprepared to die. She never spoke another word. I only beat her more until the ground around me with her blood did flow. I took her by the golden curls and I dragged her round and round, throwing her into the river that flows through Knoxville town. Go down, go down, you Knoxville girl with dark and rolling eyes. Go down, go down, you Knoxville girl. You can never be my bride. So in each of the inclusions, and this was a a really tricky thing for us, you know, I worked with Leslie Martin at Aperture, and I have a lot of things we can say about that great experience. But, you know, integrating text with the pictures was a weighty thing because these are so visual and they're so dramatic. And one of the things I didn't want to do was really kind of perpetuate the violence in those stories. And um, we had many, many ideas, but we, we sort of landed on striking through, you know, in the text, striking through the actual words of violence, um, or the actual acts of violence, or the descriptions of blood or anything like that. So when you see them in the book, they do feel altered in a way, they feel as though there's been another hand that has, at least in my opinion, disempowered them or disempowered that story by taking the violence out. Yeah, it's also a sort of shaming, which I really appreciate. Mm. You also, just from a the construction of the photo book, the, it's printed on a different colored paper, so it's it's set off from the yeah, photographs. You know, I, and that I, I, you know, I photograph in black and white mostly, and this book is, and um, there is a really rich green that comes up in these text pages, but also the cover is like a photograph of a green velvet curtain, which is, you know, the green for me is very much like the the canopy. When you're in the forest and you look up, everything is green. You're just surrounded by green. But, you know, the stage curtain is also incredibly important. Mm-hmm. It, it lets you know that there's there is a performance here. There is a stage that's been set. And so those are like sort of the two components for me that integrate that color as, you know, having real meaning in the book. How do you balance? Obviously, the lyrics are so suggestive. And I mean, they that's sort of putting it mildly. Mm-hmm. There's a story. It is an actual narrative. The work itself has a lot of narrative suggestions. So, you know, I know that this was of concern. You don't want to tell people, you don't want to point them exactly, you know, due north or due south. You want them to have their own experience. So how do you find that balance? And how did you with this project? I I hope I did. I don't, you know, I still, (laughs) I still question. I still question it. But I, I will say we spent a lot of time on the sequence. And when we decided to put the text pages, meaning the lyrics, when we decided to integrate them in the book, because, you know, we had thought, do we put them before? Do we put them at the end? Do we not put them at all? Do we make a record? You know, there was just like so many ideas. And, you know, one decision was, okay, we'll put them in the book, but we'll put them on a uncoated colored paper. And as soon as you do that, if you if you want a different color paper in your book, um, not all together in one place, you have to think about signatures. And, and signatures are, it's part of the construction of a book. It depends on how big your book page 
messages are. But essentially, when a book is being printed, you know, it's printed on these big broad sheets that are then folded down and cut. So depending on the size, you might have a signature of 12 pages or 16 pages or eight pages. And that's a set. And then, you know, you have however many of those get stitched together into a book. So to integrate colored pages that are different, they have to wrap around those signatures. So that means in the case of this book, every 12 pages, we got a green page. Well, suddenly then that created this, I'll call it an interruption in a way of like this other component. And to answer your question, it made us have to go back and reconsider the sequence because in some cases, the text would be sitting right next to an image of a woman. Mm -hmm. And that became too it played too much like a caption, like mm. this woman is mm -hmm. from this song. Right, or of course. It, just, it, mm -hmm. it wed itself too literally. And so we had to be careful to not face those text pages with anything that could feel too specific, I guess. And I, I mean, it's all in, you know, it's like maybe it's a landscape and you can imagine that's where they are. But I, I think it's different when you had a really, really severe portrait of a woman. So... You know, the balance comes through, I think, careful pacing and sequencing, but also proximity of, of certain kinds of images to others. And, you know, in my mind, I have real clarity about certain pictures being close to each other. And then I have a lot of flexibility in other areas. So it was really great to work with Leslie and our designer, Julia Schaefer, to find different answers, find different possibilities inside that sequence. You know, I just want... Yeah, sorry. Go ahead, yeah, Rebecca. I was just, just going to say I loved the way that ultimately worked and, and being brought in and on different times in the project and knowing that was a question of how to integrate those song lyrics, because these are song lyrics that I have a relationship to. And I think it gives the sense in the book of, of it just being sort of in the back of your head, very much in the landscape of this world, but very suggestive, and, and but not... But not overly. A thing that I've always admired about Christine's work is just how it does live in several different places. So there is a sense of fiction and truth and, and you know, there's you're, you're kind of moving around and nothing, even though earlier you were talking about some these kind of larger ideas about violence and women and that wonderful Rebecca Solnit quote, you read that quote at the beginning of the book, and then it kind of is just there in your head, you kind of forget it in a way as you as you move through the, the pictures, and you're just so immersed in them. And I think this, the song lyrics kind of function in that in that same way. Uh, it's just really, really remarkably done. And especially the strike throughs, I think it just creates there's, there's real power in the ambiguity and, and the way that the book the way that the pictures and the way that the texts are constructed just allow you to kind of enter on your own and really find your your own experience through these through these worlds. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think even titling pictures for me often feels too instructive. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, you know, the titles were important here. Each of the portraits are, you know, the women are, are named after characters from these songs, some of whom were real women. Uh, real historical, you know, of the historical record. And of course, the places I went were, are, you know, are real on the map. And so sometimes for me, it's, it's even too much to add that information, because I, I love 
ambiguity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I love the potential in that. But yeah, all this language, essentially, all this language actually felt really necessary here. And so mm-hmm. for me, that was very new territory to try to work out felt scary, um, because I didn't want to be I didn't want it to feel like ham fisted or just overwrought or too directive. So I'm pleased to hear that at least in this company, it's it's not received that way. <laughs> well, I'm I'm biased, but yeah. <laughs> I think there's two things that keep it from that space, in my opinion. One is, and and this is really important. One is the generous amount of landscape pictures because they function in a really interesting way. Because on one hand, as you said, they were foundational in the body of work, Murder Creek. You know, I don't know how many Murder Creeks there are in the country. There's a lot. If you start looking at maps, it's it's shocking. Mm -hmm. And so (laughs) these, these places were so foundational to the construction of the project, and yet they act as a buffer from the narrative in certain ways while strangely maintaining such intense atmosphere. So you might have a picture that does feel more narratively suggestive, and then you get to a landscape and it could continue on, that narrative could continue on into this Murder Creek or whatever place, or it could not. And I know for me, I feel both those things. And so it's it's sort of a pause without a stop. It's not a hard stop. It's just a sort of reconfiguring and yet not breaking the spell. I mean, it's really like quite a magic trick. The other thing I think is something you touched on earlier, which is this mixture of staged work and sort of pictures, happenstance pictures that you made of people outside, not the studio portraits. And because we're not quite sure what's what, that also keeps us off balance in a way. And I think being off balance is another sort of buffer from the literal or overly suggestive. So I don't I don't know if that sounds right to you, but that's sort of my experience. I mean, I think off balance sounds great in the sense that I don't want anyone to feel too comfortable looking at the work. I want them to feel engaged and something emotional, but I don't want it to feel safe or known. And so I, I do like that groundlessness that happens in the sequence because you're not sure. You know, when I was first sharing these pictures with some photographer friends of mine, I was really amused because sometimes they would think a picture was staged when it wasn't or, you know, vice versa. Mm -hmm. Right. And that to me was really interesting. Like they knew I was up to something, but they couldn't really peg it. And that feels right to me. You know, that feels right for the work that feels right in the sense, you know, so much of what I'm trying to get at is our experience in this world where you are weighing the possibilities in your psyche with like the reality in front of you and you're trying to gauge, you know, the potential for something to go wrong or the potential for someone's behavior to be expected or unexpected. You know, we're, we're constantly kind of weighing possibility. And so much of that is about 
both reality and our imagination. So I like the idea that that exists when you're moving through the pictures, the not knowing. I would say too, just to interject quickly, I think what you're saying about all the different pieces of language, I think that relates to that too, because there is a sense of dislocation and disorientation that is exciting and kind of gives the pictures some movement. But for me, it's like the, these pieces, all these little pieces of language, including the titles for the pictures, like they're extra references and they're little signs. And as if you're coming down the road and you're being confronted with all these things and, and even the pictures themselves have that feeling of kind of driving and then, and then something lodges in your head and maybe it's, you know, maybe it's a lyric or maybe it's, um, you know, a reference to, you know, The Misfit by Flannery O'Connor, which is one of the titles, I mm -hmm. think, and there's several Flannery O'Connor <laughs> titles. And you think about what happened during that story. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, and, and even if not everyone remembers, that's a pretty well known one. But whatever idea emerges in your head of that is really powerful. And even just the wondering of, you know, why is it called Murder Creek. What happened there? And sometimes you drive by these things a million times and you never think about it in real life until you start to notice them. But I think the pictures give that, they kind of deliver that natural sense of being sort of jarred by these things and, and the kind of when you do start to notice and you start to realize that it's all around you and that it's, it's been it's there. Everywhere. <laughs> and it's very much here. It's very, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Christine, I want to ask you one last question specifically about your work and that I actually think can take us to Rebecca's story. You've been known for sort of exploring masculinity in your work, and clearly you're exploring masculinity in this work as well, coming at it from a different perspective, and the women's plight is obviously first and foremost, but they wouldn't have a plight if it weren't for certainly this American, I'll say anyway, masculinity. And Rebecca, I mean, I think that your story is exactly that way as well. The father could not be in the story. I mean, obviously, it would be a totally different story. But his presence and, and his brand of masculinity is so, is so important to the story. And so we'll, we'll get to that. But Christine, can you just talk a little bit about, you know, the work that you've made that you're known for? You mentioned Manifest. But prior to this and, and this sort of preoccupation with, with American masculinity? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot that could be said you know, I kind of mentioned growing up around the military and just this incredibly masculine energy, you know, with a lot of brothers and my, you know, it's like the one woman in my, in my family, my mother also grew up in a similar situation. I just, I, I think I, from a young age, um, was like the, the relationship between men and the potential for violence. And I don't mean that in my household. I have a, an incredibly wonderful, very loving, kind father. But, you know, his job was basically the management of violence. I mean, I see the military as, as like this structure that manages violence to different ends. And that was always really, you know, and he's a hunter. He's always been a hunter. I think from a very young age, I just, you know, I had these ideas that made me uncomfortable or that I wanted to unpack. You know, one of the first bodies of work I did when I got out of graduate school is is a work on 
young cadets at West Point. And for me, that was maybe just the most direct way of of dealing with my family history and mm-hmm. thinking about the construction of that persona and thinking about like the young American kid turned soldier turned into somebody who has to manage violence on a on a daily basis. And, you know, I kind of was curious how that happens. The, you know, in my pictures, I think, softened them a lot. I think my instinct with them was to look at them a different way. Like if the military was trying to build them into a certain character, my instinct was to say no, like, you're more complex than that, or you're, you can be afraid, or you can be scared, you can be all those things, we should know that and stop trying to reduce masculinity to this very utilitarian, in this very utilitarian way, which I think the military does. And I, I don't mean to ramble, but after that work and when I went out west, I was I was thinking about other archetypes of masculinity. So I, I moved on from the soldier to the cowboy. And again, just sort of upending the stories or the expectations of that character and showing you at least in my mind, another story, another way of looking at it. And, you know, we can call it masculinity, but I guess if there's another thread that connects all these bodies of work, it really is the potential for violence. And that becomes a masculine thing in my work, because largely, that's where we experience it, not, not exclusively Mm -hmm. by by any stretch, but largely. And so, in some ways, my thinking about all of this is beginning to evolve, I guess, to think more about like what the potential of violence is, what that means, who holds that power, um, how we give it power in our own minds and how that affects us. And look, I'm working in the American South and, you know, talking about gendered violence. I'm, I'm well aware that there is a big history of violence in the South of racial violence that's important to consider. And, you know, there's brilliant bodies of work being made even today, taking that on. I'm really interested in what Dawood Bay is doing right now. I think I didn't see those dark pictures until a couple of years ago, four or five years ago. And I was kind of thrilled by some of them because I had been working in these dark, in these dark landscapes as well and getting really excited about what I could see and how sharp I could make the pictures and what kind of emotive quality could be carried in a picture like that. I've gotten off subject, Sasha. I'm sorry. No, no, no. It's it's okay. Let's let's no. Um, that's my specialty, so no need to apologize. So- we hope you enjoyed part one of this episode. And depending upon when you're listening, part two will be released either in two weeks or it is possibly already out. And now a word from our sponsor. Hey everyone. So just a reminder that the podcast is now being sponsored by my favorite photo lab in New York City, Picture House in the small dark room, which I'm super psyched about. Yes. Not just because they're sponsoring the podcast, but because we're going to be doing a lot of different things with them. They're going to be involved with our mentorship program and some other things we have um, that we're we're working on. Yeah, this is a really nice partnership. Awesome partnership. Yeah. It's, it's a perfect fit, right? Mm-hmm. So Picture House in the Small Dark Room, for those who don't know, is a darkroom and post-production studio that's uh, been servicing the photo community in New York City since... 1996, so they know what they're doing. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So if you have a question about film, their amazing staff can help you with processing, high-risk scanning, darkroom printing, digital post. And they have an amazing team, um, most of whom have 
been with them for more than five years and a lot of them um, close to 20 years, which is, mm -hmm. I think, says a lot about the people at the top and how they interact with the people who work there. And, and they really care about the work that goes through the shop. And it, it doesn't matter if it's doing one print, single frame scan, or a huge 200 image post-production advertising job. They give all the jobs the same amount of, of love and attention. So, oh, and, and I want to say, because I think this is super cool, they just opened a little photo book store yes. um, there at the facility. So you can go and drop off film or whatever and hang out in their photo book store. There's a couch there. And it's really highly curated titles. They do um, artist talks and book signings. So right. they, these people are in our world. We love them. And uh, and check out their events, even if they're not uh, related to our events. <laughs> yes, yes. They are autonomous. That's right. <laughs> um, they've been around a lot longer than us. Um, and how do folks get in touch with them? Right, so check them out at PHTSDR, that's for Picture House, the Small Darkroom, dot com. And you can also check out their really great Instagram account at the same name, PHTSDR. Uh, and they have a lot of great postings there, and they've been uh, sharing some of our posts there, which is really nice. Yeah, yeah. very nice of them. And then you can also, uh, at their website, uh, see all the uh, upcoming events. Right on. Okay, so once again... Picture House in the Small Darkroom, welcome to the Photo Work family. Yes, welcome. Photo Work with Sasha Wolf is produced by me, Michael Chauvin Dalton of Real Photo Show. The associate producer is Taylor Selsback, and the executive producer is Sasha Wolf. Our theme music is by J. Walter Hawks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and rate us with all the stars available on your listening platform. 